to our study of the book of 2 Thessalonians, finishing out the first chapter together, learning how to pray for the afflicted. Affliction and suffering, they come in a lot of different forms, don't they? Affliction could come through intentional persecution because of our Christian faith. I know a number of years ago I was talking with a worker in Indonesia and he was giving me reports and even was interviewed by the Los Angeles Times at the, t- at the time when he had returned from ministry in Indonesia and he was talking about the horrendous threats of murder and even mutilation that Christians were going through trying to force them to recant their faith and turn to Islam In our trips to Turkey, we've met believers there who have been threatened as soon as they're baptized with death threats from their family, if not just complete rejection, not only by family, but the culture. Affliction could come in the form of Christian families in Nashville, Tennessee, mourning over the murder of three students and three faculty members of a Christian school by a former student who had a manifesto to carry out. But affliction and suffering could come in less intentionally targeted ways, can't it? Probably by a lot of ways that are experienced by many of us even this morning or throughout this week or in the past number of months. The unexpected loss of an unborn child. The unexpected death of a spouse. The painful vigil of watching a spouse with a terminal illness slip into eternity unexpected, unexplained illness that debilitates your ability to work and certainly have fellowship with the saints. Loss of employment and no immediate prospects for new employment. The list could go on and on. If we just walked through the room and we we asked you, how have you seen suffering and how have you seen illustrations of affliction? Probably many of you could come up with some kind of description of personal suffering that either you have experienced yourself or that you know others are going through. We live in a world and we have bodies. We live in a society that are all infested with the destructive effects of sin. It makes affliction and suffering a constant given expectation. At some time, in some way, we are all going to walk through some form of affliction and suffering. And what is it that Christians do instinctively when either we are going through times of afflictions or those around us are experiencing some kind of suffering? What do we do instinctively? We we pray. It's what we do. We cry out to the one who alone has sovereign ability to intervene in all of these seasons of suffering and affliction. But for all of us who do pray... What are we praying? For what do we ask God in seasons of affliction? We all know what we want. We want the suffering to go away. We want the affliction to end. But we all know, if we know much about the Bible, we all know that suffering and affliction will only end when the curse of sin has gone away, right? So how do we pray to that end? We know that suffering and affliction will go away when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness and there's no more death, there's no more sadness, no more tears. We, we get that. So what do we do and how do we pray about suffering and affliction until that day comes? With that day in mind, how do we pray? We find in this passage, Paul praying for the afflicted to that end. Matter of fact, we we don't actually see Paul praying here. We have a report from Paul on how he prays. You notice, this is not the language of, may God do this. It's not the language of him actually praying. It's him giving a report on, this is the way that I pray for you as you're going through affliction. Meaning, Paul likely intends for this to be a model. He intends for this to be the way that we pray for people as they walk through affliction. Now, as we've learned from the study of 1 Thessalonians and the beginning of our study of 2 Thessalonians, the Christians in this ancient city of Thessalonica, 
They entered into Christianity and immediately they entered into a time of suffering and affliction and persecution. And Paul's greatest concern for them as he was writing to them, his greatest concern was not just for their personal safety and protection, it was not about their cultural rejection, but that they would not give up on following Christ. That was his greatest concern. Because suffering has, has this penchant to pull you away from believing in Christ. And that was his greatest concern. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he said in verse 4, when we, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass. And for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. About what? I sent to find out about your faith. Not just your safety, not just your physical well-being. I, I wanted to know about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Did we serve you? Did we come to you, preach the gospel to you? And suffering came with it and then all of that labor, all of that effort was out the door because now you've left the faith? That was his great concern. So he sends people to find out about their faith and he gives them instruction about how to live underneath that kind of affliction. But what we learn in 2 Thessalonians 1 at the end of the chapter is that he also prays. He prays for them. And we see how he prayed. For what he asked of God. Ways he interceded for those who were suffering. So here's the model. Here's the model of knowing what the right things to pray for are when people are going through times of trial and suffering. What are we to pray for Christians who find themselves in seasons of affliction? Well, maybe you could take what we say here today and, and jot it down on a piece of paper, maybe the back of your bulletin. You keep this somewhere close to your Bible or in that place where you tend to pray regularly for other Christians and you use this as a reminder walk through these. Is this the way I'm praying for the brothers and sisters in our church? Brothers and sisters we hear about in the news. Brothers and sisters we hear about as we go to other parts of the world and bring the gospel. Is this how we're praying? Are these things what we are praying for them? So this morning we're going to look at six ways we can pray for afflicted Christians. Six different ways we can pray for the afflicted Christians as they walk through seasons of suffering. Just as these believers were, Paul gives us a model. Here's how I'm praying for you. Here's the categories of prayer. Six ways to pray for Christians in seasons of affliction. First of all, you pray with the end in mind. You pray with the end in mind. Where do we get that? Notice the very first phrase of verse 11. To this end also we pray. To what end? To what end are we praying? Well, what we find in verse 11 is the resumption of a statement about Paul's prayerful gratitude that he actually began all the way back in verse 3. Do you see it? We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, and he interrupts himself. He starts to describe a statement of gratitude for them and their faith and their love, and he interrupts himself in that statement of prayerful gratitude to talk about what? The coming of the Lord. And how the end and how the coming of the Lord will actually be the evidence that, sh that God will use to justify his vindication of their godly lives in the face of persecution. And what he does in verse 11 is he gets back to his prayer that he began in verse 3. And he says to that end, I've been thanking God for the faith that you have and the fact that you're growing in the Lord, you're growing in your love toward each other, and I want you to know that it's worth growing because the Lord's going to come back. The Lord's going to vindicate you. The Lord's going to glorify you. And to that end, with the end in mind, to that end, we pray for you. You ever read that book by Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person? 
I should make you raise your hands and see who's read it just to see how secular you are. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a book worth, worth reading. The second habit in Covey's book, when he talks about how to be disciplined, is to begin with the end in mind. So you have a project, start with the end in mind, and then go forward in the project, right? I think he stole that from Paul. I think he just plagiarized Paul. Except Paul's not talking about some temporary project that you have in mind. He's talking about, here's how I pray for you now in light of the end that's coming. That would revolutionize the way we pray for each other. If we prayed for each other, thinking about what's coming, especially prayed for people who are in periods and seasons of suffering and affliction as if we were praying in light of what is coming, that God comes to vindicate, not just to deal justly with the affliction, but he also comes to glorify himself in us. To that end, to that end we pray for those who are in affliction. As your faith grows and your love is extended, as we grow in the pride that we have, the boastful pride that we talked about a few weeks ago, as our confidence rises that God will count you worthy of the future kingdom because you endure the suffering, because God will avenge your suffering, knowing God will bring eternal relief to the pressures that you currently face, rejoicing that Jesus will return and invest in you his eternal glory to that end, we pray. I want you to think about that this week when you're praying for those who are walking through any kind of suffering you could imagine. Are you praying with the end in mind? And how would that change or inform or help you pray for each other? Pray for those who suffer with the end in mind. There's a second way we can pray for afflicted Christians in verse 11. It's found in one word. The word always Pray persistently. Pray persistently. We pray for you always. The word translated prayer here, or pray, it's the most general word in all of the New Testament for prayer. It encompasses all the different kinds of prayer that you might see, whether it's confession of sin, intercession for people, thanksgiving. It covers all of that, that ground. And it's found here in the Greek present tense. Meaning, not that Paul is just praying right now. In Greek, the present tense doesn't just mean right now. What does the Greek present tense mean? It means in an ongoing way. It's as if it's his instinctive habit to constantly pray. So he says right off the bat, I am always instinctively, habitually praying for you. And then he adds the word always. Now he did this back when he was giving thanks for them back in verse 3. He's always giving thanks, present tense in the Greek. I'm, I'm habitually giving thanks, and he adds the word always again. And when he resumes the prayer, and he's talking about how he intercedes for them now, he adds it again, I'm always praying for you always. Don't you hate it when preachers are redundant and they say the same thing over and over, and you're like, get on with it. You've said it already this morning. Well, maybe it's that we need to hear it again. We're not appreciating it. We're, maybe we're not learning it. And how encouraging is it to you when you hear someone saying to you over and over, maybe it bugs you. Maybe you're like, stop praying for me. You ever say that? Probably not. I am always praying for you all the time. That would encourage them. It actually shows them a model of the discipline of prayer from Paul's life. It's instructive for other people to follow this kind of habit. Notice it also even shows his own dependence on the Lord for them because he constantly prays. He doesn't just throw one out and say, oh, I hope that happens. No, I'm constantly begging God for you. I think it unveils his own theology that every action that he may urge them to do requires the activity of God so I'm praying for you to follow these things I think it probably keeps Paul's own heart from growing discouraged and that's why he prays all the time discouraged people are likely absent of biblical kinds of praying if they remain in discouragement 
Paul's applying what Jesus taught us about prayer. Do you remember Luke 18? You can jot it down. You don't have to turn there, but Luke 18, verse 1, when Jesus was telling a parable, he tells a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. How often are you praying about something that doesn't seem to budge? And so you have to learn how to pray and not lose heart in what you're praying about. And then he goes into the parable of that persistent widow who kept pleading with a judge for justice. And then Jesus made this statement in Luke 18, 7. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Who's Paul praying for? In Second Thessalonians 1, the afflicted. What does he know is coming in the future? Justice. He's applying Jesus' words. You want justice? You pray and you keep praying and you keep praying because the judge who judges justly will come. That's what Paul's doing here. He's applying Jesus' own words. When you pray persistently, you reveal, I understand God's timing in how he works out justice, his timing is best. I trust him. When you pray persistently, you're showing that our wisdom is short-sighted. We don't see everything that could be seen and needs to be seen. We don't see it all, so we keep praying. And have you noticed what happens to you in your prayers when you pray with persistence? Your prayers tend to change. We have a tendency to begin to pray about things that are earthly and temporal and fleshly and personal. And the more we pray, and the more we pray biblically, and we allow the Bible to inform the way we pray, our prayers tend to change from earthly, physical, temporary reliefs to the kinds of prayer requests that reflect heavenly, spiritual, eternal results. Think about this. If you connect biblical truth, like Paul is doing here, biblical truth about the end what's coming in the future, if you connect biblical truth to how you pray and you do that perpetually for those for whom you're praying, you provide biblically rich, instructive truth to the people that you say you're praying for. Here's what I'm praying to the end I'm praying and I'm praying for you about this over and over and over. You want to pray for the afflicted? Pray with the end in mind and pray persistently. Let's go to the third way that we can pray for afflicted Christians. You think this is going way too fast. Just so you know, we're about to throttle back, all right? The third way we can pray for afflicted Christians. Pray for God's affirmation of their responses. This is really fascinating to me. Pray for God's affirmation of their responses. Here's where we find the first actual statement of the content of Paul's prayer in verse 11. To this end, we also pray for you always that. That our God will count you worthy of your calling. This is really a profound statement. He prays, God, look at their responses to what they're going through and consider these people worthy of the salvation that you've brought into them. I want to unpack that. What does Paul mean here by the word calling? Count them worthy of their calling. There's a few ways in the Bible that we could talk about the word calling. Calling can be a general invitation from God to become a Christian like we hear at the end of most of our services when we call out to any of you who are here and we say any of you who are here who are not Christians and want to know what it means to become a Christian, we would love to talk with you. Here is what the gospel is for any of you who don't know the gospel. It's a general call and anyone could respond to that. That could be the way the word calling is used in the Gospels. You will find it used that way in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The word calling is used that way. Many are called and few are 
chosen. So there's a general call to anyone to respond. Or the word calling can also refer to a positive effect of the invitation that is made. We mean by that those who accept the invitation to be called to the gospel are then the called. And that's the way the Apostle Paul uses this. Not in just a general invitation to anyone, but calling here refers to the actual effect of the invitation, the acceptance of the invitation. You become the called when you accept the calling. If I give a general invitation to become a Christian, the people who come and say, I want to follow Christ, I give my life to Christ, they are the called. It's a wonderful way to talk about our salvation. That's what he means here. Your calling is your salvation. It's a wonderful way to talk about salvation because no one calls themselves into salvation. You don't, you don't call yourself into it. You were called by God into it and you responded to it. No one has the instinct in themselves or in the innate ability to even respond to the general call if God does not sovereignly move on their heart to respond to that. Sin enslaves you so that you don't even want to hear the call. But when you want it, and you long for it, and you desire it, and you call out to God, you realize you have been called. Everybody, the longer they walk in their salvation, they look back and they see, this was the work of God. This wasn't my work. It really is. I am called by God into this. So by referring to salvation as our calling, what are we highlighting? We're always highlighting the activity of God, aren't we? The graciousness of God to offer and to bring salvation to us and call us into it effectively. We call it the effectual call because it's an effective call of God. It actually has a positive outcome. So what then is Paul praying here? He's praying that God would consider you worthy of your salvation. The worthiness here is describing your response to life. Namely, your affliction and your suffering that you're going through. So as you're going through affliction, I'm praying that God will consider you, as you respond to that affliction, worthy of your salvation. Do your responses live up to what God called you to when he effectually called you into salvation? Do your responses look like the responses of saved people? Some versions of the Bible and some theologians don't like that word translated in the New American Standard here as consider or count you worthy. They don't like that because they, they, they say, no, we should change that to make you worthy. You might have a footnote there that says this is make you worthy. Why is that? Well, it... It has the tendency, doesn't it? It has the sound like this is running over our cherished truth of justification by faith alone or that truth that says that God saves you not because he looked into you and considered you worthy, but he looked into you and he imputed to you, he imparted to you the actual righteousness of Jesus and he considers you worthy because he put the righteousness of Christ to your account. And that's how he considers you worthy. So this can't mean may God look at you and consider you worthy. It has to be may God make you worthy of that in your sanctification. So when God imputes the righteousness of Jesus to you, we call that justification. Sanctification is him going through the process of life to make you live up to who he's created you to be in Christ. So this has to be may God make you worthy. I think there's a lot of theological truth in that. God never looks at us and says, oh, I think you're worthy because you, you, worked, you worked well enough, you did enough, and you'll be worthy because you, you responded well enough so you can be worthy. 
No, we, we know the truth. You enter into salvation not because of any worth in yourself. You can't get there because there's some inherent worth. It has to be only because God looks at the worth of Christ as he's applied it to you. But this is not referring to initial salvation. What Paul is praying about here has nothing to do with justification. In fact, the context of this is looking to the end. With the end in mind, he's not looking at initial salvation, but final salvation. He's looking to eschatological salvation, the end. May God, at the end of all things, in final salvation, may he consider you, count you worthy of the salvation he called you into. Again, that doesn't mean a denial of the imputation of Christ. He's saying when you get to the end, may God look at how you responded. Namely, in like faith, as he talked about in verse three, and love, and see that you're worthy of your salvation. That doesn't have to run contrary to the biblical understanding of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Not at all. What is it that God would look at? As salvation is wrapped up and the end of time begins to come, what would he look at that would show you to be worthy? How you lived your life. How did you respond to your life situations? Did you respond in faith? Did you grow in your love? Or if you just looked at the other verses, the rest of verses 11 and 12, did you fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with God's power? Did you do that in such a way that Jesus will be in the end glorified in you and you glorified in him? That would be evidence that you are worthy of the calling. How much of that is accomplished by God, by the way? All of it. All of it. He's not denying the work of God in your sanctification. He's assuming it. Just as affliction will be the evidence that shows God's judgment on the unrighteous to be just, God's work in your life as you respond to affliction will be the evidence that shows you worthy of the kingdom to come. He's praying here, and I think we should mimic this prayer that our responses to our affliction would give up the kind of evidence that brings God's affirmation in the end. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean by that. Just for a moment, turn back in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. So the first Gospel, and go to chapter 25. And look specifically at verse 14. We're not going to read through all of it, but I I just want to point this out to you. Here's an illustration of how God, in the end, then, counts you worthy of your salvation, considers you worthy. You'll know this. This will be familiar to you. In verse 14, there's a parable. It's oftentimes called the parable of the talents. And it's about a man who goes on a journey and he entrusts his slaves with his possessions. It's the idea of God entrusting the truth of the gospel to people. And to one, he gives five talents, which is a sum of money. To one, he gives three talents, and to another, he gives one talent. Or he gives five, then two, then one. Pardon me. And you know the the story here in verses 14 down to verse 30. Two of the slaves take the talents that they have been given, and what do they do with them? They put them where? They put them in the bank, and it grows with interest, right? One of the slaves takes his one talent, and he goes and he buries it in the ground, and he covers it up. And then the master returns, doesn't he? What is the master's evaluation of the activity of the slaves at the end when he returns? Does he consider them worthy or unworthy of the talent that he entrusted to them. We'll look at verse 20. 
to the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. Well, this is an illustration. Here, God has entrusted the gospel truth to you. What have you done with that? Have you grown in it? Have you persevered in it? Is it has it grown in you? Have you done anything with the truth? Yes, look, it's grown. And verse 21 is his evaluation, his consideration. His master said to, them, to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. In verse 22, also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. That is the evaluation of the master saying, I consider you worthy of the talent that I entrusted to you. Because look what you did with it. Look how you responded through all of, all of the time that passed. What did you do with it? How do you respond? And don't we say that oftentimes when we talk about saints who depart and they enter into the presence of the Lord, that they've heard that phrase from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant do we mean by that when we say it you earned your salvation that God looks at you and says way to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps way to get yourself into heaven no we don't mean that we know because the Bible tells us all of what we have done with our life how we've grown in the truth we have done by God's grace but in the end we have grown we have acted we have done something faithful with what he's entrusted to us and the evidence at the end is him considering us worthy because we've actually responded well what about the unfaithful one verse 28 or you look at verse 26 the master answered to the one who put his talent in the ground you wicked lazy slave you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents for to everyone who has more shall be given and he will have an abundance but from the one who does not have even what he does have will be taken away Throw out the worthless slave into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you do nothing with the truth and there's no evidence of life, what happens? You didn't live worthy of your salvation. Now, what does Jesus mean by that parable? If you, if you're, you don't know quite what he means, what does the next verse say in verse 31? He starts explaining it in terms of the end. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Now, how does he evaluate them? Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So when was the kingdom prepared? From the foundation of the world. What did they do to get the kingdom? Well, nothing. It was given to them before the foundation of the world for them, right? But the king evaluates their life to see if they're worthy of the kingdom. How does he do that? Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. These are people who are responding to others who are under affliction. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, when did that happen? I don't remember seeing you and naked and feeding you. And what's his answer? As much as you did this to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. And verse 41 is his evaluation. Or pardon me, that's his evaluation of those who didn't do anything. Um, the king will answer, verse 40, 
Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. And what about those who did nothing? And they looked at people who were going through affliction, believers going through affliction, and they did nothing. They responded little. They had no response of faith. Verse 41, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Because I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you? When you saw the least of my brethren, you did nothing for them. When they're going through affliction, you did nothing for them. You've not shown yourself worthy of the calling. It's an illustration of exactly what Paul is referring to. There comes a point in the end when God evaluates our life. He's not talking about did his work of grace cause this to happen. Yes, theologically we know that. And we'll even see it actually pointed out in this text also. But he's going to give an evaluation of our life. And it's going to have to do with all the practicalities of how we lived our life in response to times of affliction and people going through that affliction. Did we live in a manner worthy of the gospel? And so what is Paul praying? That you would live in a manner worthy. Now, go back to... First Thessalonians, just for a moment. Look at verse 5, or 2 Thessalonians, pardon me, chapter 1, verse 5. Remember, their growth in faith and love was, and in the midst of affliction, was a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that, notice this phrase, you will be what? considered worthy of the kingdom of God. As you grow in your faith, as you grow in your love for each other, during these times of afflictions and you endure, you are then considered worthy. That phrase, considered worthy, shares as a root word the same term in verse 11 that God will count you worthy. So he says, I already see that you are considered worthy because you're growing and I'm praying that you will keep growing in this and that at the end God will consider you worthy of your calling. This is how we pray for those who are going through affliction. That God would affirm their responses to their affliction that they would live in such a way that their responses would actually receive his ultimate final affirmation, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. Enter in. You've shown yourself, by my grace, you've shown yourself worthy of the kingdom. God will consider those worthy of their calling who consider their calling more valuable than their own temporary comfort or ease. We're actually called to pray for people to be considered by God at the end worthy of the kingdom. So when you pray, you're praying with the end in mind. You're praying constantly for them, persistently. And you're praying for God to affirm the responses that the afflicted have to their suffering so they show the salvation of God to be worth suffering for. I want you to ask yourself, when's the last time I prayed that way for someone who's going through suffering? That God would so help them persevere so that when they come to the end, God says, well done. That's his evaluation, well done. There's a fourth way we can pray for the afflicted Christians. See, at the end of verse 4, pray for God's fulfillment of biblical desires and deeds. Pray for God's fulfillment of biblical desires and deeds. So to this end, we pray for you always that, first, our God will count you worthy of your calling, but secondly, that God will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So here's the second strand in the content of Paul's prayer for the afflicted saints. 
Here's what Paul is asking God to do in them. And we could say this is how God will give his affirmation of their responses as God fulfills their desires for good, as God fulfills all of their desires for good deeds that come from faith. May God fulfill every desire for goodness. That's a really interesting phrase. The word desire is the term eudokia. You, it's made up of two words, you, E-U, if we were to transliterate it into English, is the word for good. It's just a statement, a prefix for good. Dikeo is, is the ending of it, and it means to have a certain kind of mindset. So a mindset about life that is good. A mindset, a good mindset that is full of goodness. What does he mean by goodness here? That term is used four times by the Apostle Paul. In Romans 15, 14, he describes the Roman Christians. He says, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves, because of the gospel, you are full of goodness. In Galatians 5, goodness is described as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and what? Goodness, goodness. Ephesians 5.9, Paul describes goodness this way. The fruit of the light, the fruit of the light. Light is connected to God and his nature and who he is, righteousness and holiness. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So when Paul describes goodness here, he's not just talking about some cultural idea in the mind of everybody around you of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what's not good. He's thinking of a goodness that's tied to the righteousness of God that flows from the Holy Spirit. Now think of this carefully. Paul is praying for people going through times of affliction and suffering and if they're living in a way that fits with their calling in their salvation, in the midst of their suffering, they're maintaining a certain kind of mindset, a purposefulness that produces desires, good desires that God defines as good. And they're thinking of their suffering from God's perspective. They're trying to learn how it is to be dependent on God as they suffer. They have good desires, full of righteous goodness. Now stop and ask yourself, what's so significant about that? Well, when you go through affliction, what emotion comes up most readily? Is it goodness? Probably not. It's anger hatred, vengeance, isn't it? That's what normally comes up. And when normal people go through affliction and suffering, they're frustrated they have to go through it. Look at how this is affecting my life. This isn't fair. This is unjust. We should not have to go through this. And they grow in anger and bitterness and revenge and vengeance. And what's Paul praying for the afflicted here? That God will take every mindset. It means you're thinking on the affliction with a God-centered mindset that's actually good, not angry. Good, not bitter. Good, not vengeful. What is earthly, what's common, what's natural, what's normal is to respond with outrage, vengeance, revenge, and anger. How much of that fits is worthy of your salvation. So you know why Paul's praying what he's praying, don't you? I'm praying that he would fulfill what he sees as good as you go through this time of affliction. Now I know someone's gonna say, wait a minute. You're just telling us here we're to be passive. We have no response, no recourse, no ability to to respond to injustice with justice in this life. We just have to wait on God and and we're just passive. I'm I'm not suggesting that necessarily. Where our culture and our our culture has, our government has allowed us certain rights and privileges and constitutional rights, right? That they believe are inherent with humanity to respond to injustice. And we have the opportunity to do that. Like every single one of you who are concerned about justice, you're actually going to show up at the polls on Tuesday and not stay home, right? 
because you have that constitutional right. You're actually going to go vote and you're going to vote in ways that are commensurate with God's righteousness. That's a way to preserve justice in the earth, right? It is. And you have the right to do that. But what happens when that doesn't work out and produce the justice that you know should happen? What happens then? What do you do then? With what kind of mindset will you respond? Well, what did Jesus say? When he said, here's how you should pray about injustice, what did he say? Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who what? That's desire for goodness. He's praying that the afflicted saints would respond and God would fulfill in them every desire, good mindset that's full of biblical goodness. That would be to pray for those who persecute, to bless those who afflict you. Or as Paul says, in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. That's goodness, according to the Bible. That's goodness in the face of affliction. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17 of Romans 12, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. What kind of wrath does he have in mind there? He actually quotes the Bible, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What kind of vengeance? Well, the same kind of vengeance that we talked about last week in verses 5 through 10 of 2 Thessalonians 1, God's ultimate vengeance you don't take vengeance for yourself now. You don't respond to evil with more evil. You respond with goodness. Because God will have vengeance. In fact, Paul goes on to say, if your enemy is hungry, what do you do? Quoting the scripture, feed him. That's good, isn't it? Feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? I think a lot of people think, ah, if they do bad to me, I'm going to do good to them so they feel bad about what they've done. It'll be like burning coals. Have you ever noticed people who persecute don't normally feel bad about it? Even if you give them a sandwich, they're like, hey, thanks, and then they afflict more. What's the burning coals? Final judgment. What is he saying? The more you do that is good to your enemies, the more evidence that is of the righteousness of the judgment of God when it finally comes and he takes vengeance on those who have afflicted you. So you, do you see why Paul is praying for the afflicted? That he would fulfill every mindset that's full of biblical goodness as you're going through affliction. But not, not just biblical desires. I'm praying that God fulfills biblical deeds in you also. Because he also goes on to say, I'm praying that God will fulfill the work of faith with power. That is the work, the actions, the activities that come from our faith. Our confidence in Jesus that produces a life that is steadfast. When we respond to hatred with love or injustice with forgiveness, or when we're afflicted, we'll see this later on in the book of 2 Thessalonians, we keep going to church. We don't neglect fellowship with the saints. And when we're afflicted with suffering, we don't stop working and doing what God calls us to do to be steadfast and stable in life. We go to work and we go to church and we live stable lives because we're confident in Jesus. I'm praying for you who are afflicted that you'll keep doing what shows faith and that by power, by God's power. You see what he's saying? He's praying 
that God will fulfill every biblical kind of desire and deed as you go through affliction. When is the last time you prayed for those going through affliction or injustice with that in mind? Pray for them. It's a profound way to pray for the afflicted. Let's look at verse 12 and a fifth way we can pray for the afflicted Christian. Pray they will glorify Jesus. Pray they will glorify Jesus. It's in the beginning of verse 12. So that, here's the result. This is the reason why I want all your good desires, all your good deeds to be fulfilled. This, I'm praying for God to look at you at the end and say, well done. What result? With the result that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. The name of our Lord Jesus. As if you bear his identity. That his name, his identity is magnified in you at the end. And I think he has in mind here at the end. Not just as you're going through it. Certainly that is true. But he's talking about what happens at the end. I'm praying that you endure all the way to the end so that in the end, the name and the identity of Jesus Christ is magnified in you in the way you lived your life when you went through so much affliction and suffering. It's a similar idea that Peter had in mind in 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? The return of Jesus. So keep your behavior biblical, steady, righteous, so that when people slander you, what happens to your name in the end? It's so tethered to the name of Jesus that God's name, Christ's name in you is glorified and magnified. Pray that the result of the endurance of those who are afflicted will result in God being seen in his ultimate response as glorious, just, supreme, sovereign, lovely. Do you know what the refrain will be in the end when the Lord returns? I want you to listen to the saints. Revelation 19. Talking about the end. After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation! And glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he's avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That's what happens at the end. At the end, the saints glorify Jesus. They see the righteous judgment of God and they say what? Hallelujah. God has applied justice. Hallelujah. The saints have been vindicated. Paul is praying for that day that the saints would be glorified in Jesus. That they would glorify him. That they would praise him. You pray that way? I pray that these afflicted saints will find their identity in the name of Christ so much so that they glorify Christ when he comes. They magnify him when he comes. And that their life and their good deeds show how glorious he is. But not only that, this brings us to the sixth, the final way to pray for the afflicted. Pray Jesus will glorify the saints. You see that back in 2 Thessalonians 1, 
So we're praying that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. And you glorified in him. What does that mean? You're finished. Complete. The struggle's over. The affliction ends. The tears are dried up. There's no more struggle with sin. There's no more fighting about, with sin outside of you or inside of you. That the glory of God is now in you. Your character is now complete and perfect. By the way, that's the scene of the end also. Could go to a number of places, but just listen to Revelation 22. Here's the end. Here's when we are glorified. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its streets, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Where have you heard of the tree of life before? Genesis. Gives perpetual life. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves on the tree were for the healing of the nations. Well, what happened to the nations? Remember Genesis chapters 10 and 11? They went astray. They all rebelled against God. They wanted a name for themselves. And now they, they're healed by the tree of life that gives all of the people and the nations that inhabit the new heaven and the new earth. It gives them complete life and healing. It goes on to say there'll no longer be any curse. What's that a refer, reference to? Genesis, Genesis 3? It's gone. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. That's when the saints are actually glorified by Christ. Do you pray that way for the afflicted? That that vision keeps them running and driving in righteousness and goodness in the midst of all the affliction they're going through? And by the way, Paul just wants you to be reminded that God will count you worthy of your calling and God will fulfill every desire for goodness and God will cause the name of the Lord Jesus to be glorified in you and he will cause you to be glorified in Jesus according to the end of verse 12, the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there's no hint of self-effort. This is all done by the mercy and favor of God. You live your life in this kind of righteousness because God is gracious in Christ. Pray with the end in mind when you pray for the afflicted. Pray persistently for them. Pray for God to affirm the afflicted's responses when they're going through affliction. Pray for God's fulfillment of all their biblical desires and actions. Pray that they will glorify Jesus in the end. And pray that Jesus will glorify them. That's how you pray for the afflicted. So, who needs you to pray for them that way right now? Who in the body needs that? You're going through the membership directory. Who are you praying for this way? When is the last time you stopped and you said, This is the way I'm going to pray for those walking through affliction? I'm going to write them a note. I'm going to jot down 2 Thessalonians 11 and 12. Here's how I'm praying for you. I know you're going through this struggle. I'm praying this for you. This is practical. This is how Paul taught us to pray for those going through affliction. Do you see how eschatology actually shapes your life right now? Even how you pray? You can't avoid it. You can't ignore it. It's what drives you to pray confidently. I pray that that's going to be true of us. Let's pray together.
Father, as we finish our time today, we do ask that you would make us mindful of those who are walking through seasons of affliction. Help us to pray the right things for them. Help us to pray in the right way for them. Help us to pray in such a way that they'll live their life and hear you at the end say, well done. I pray that everything that is right and good, biblically good, for them to want and how to respond to their affliction, that you would fulfill it. I pray that they will find their glory and their joy and their rejoicing in the return of Jesus when all things are made new. And I pray that you would bring your glory into those who are afflicted and remove the curse of sin and bring us into that day when all things are made new and we enjoy eternity in your presence. Lord, until that day comes, I pray that we would not be inactive and we wouldn't be passive, but we would live thoroughly biblical lives and we'd pray for each other so that we walk through this life and all the suffering and affliction that we go through, helping each other to keep our eyes on Christ, the prize ahead, the finish line to come, so we don't lose track of hope. Do this work among us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.